This is Art Woods. And Marty Martin. We're the hosts of Big Biology. We just wanted to remind you that we're in the middle of a month-long fundraising push. We just created a Patreon page, and we're trying to get 30 people to donate before the end of December. Patreon is a website where listeners can make monthly contributions to support the podcast. If you want to become a patron of the podcast, you should visit www.patreon.com bigbio. We're a small team, so we really depend on donations from listeners to keep going. Your contributions pay for our software, script writing, website, and social media, as well as other tools we need to make the podcast. We're also a nonprofit organization, so these donations are all tax-deductible. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a donation. Again, the place to do that is www.patreon.com bigbio. We've got an initial group of people donating already, and if you're one of them, you've got bragging rights. Here's the show. The basics of evolution by natural selection are pretty simple. Traits like size and color and speed and such, they all vary among individuals. As long as some of that variation can be inherited, populations will change as some individuals get eaten, others get outcompeted, and others are unable to breed. Now, most of you probably already understand this, but on today's episode, we're going to show how that simple idea can get really complicated. Let's start with an example. Here's how it works for the evolution of tail length in a population of lizards living on an island. The lizards on this island are mostly the same, but in some important ways, they're really different. Some lizards have shorter tails, and some have longer ones. Let's say we wanted to predict what would happen to the lizards if a new predator arrives on the island that preferentially catches long-tailed lizards. Maybe some crazy researchers on the island decide to bring their cats and let them roam free. That really is mean to the researchers, but that's okay. <laughs> There's not too many researchers that would do that, at least anymore, but whatever. Okay, how, how about I say something else? Uh, may, maybe some maybe some tourists to the island bring their cats, and the cats accidentally escape and start to roam free and start to eat lizards. Turns out, evolutionary biologists have a simple mathematical equation that helps them predict what'll happen. This equation, called the Breeders' Equation, was first invented in the 1930s, so it's tried and true and still widely used. It says that the change in tail length from one generation to the next depends on two things. The first is how much the escaped cats like long-tailed lizards. If they like them a lot more than short tails, then the effect will be bigger. And the second factor is heritability of tail length. Heritability just describes how much genetic variation affects variation in the specific trait, in this case, tail length. If the heritability is high, then the offspring of long-tailed lizards are much more likely to have long tails themselves because they inherit their parents' genes. So when you multiply these two factors together, it tells you how much a trait will evolve. If the cats love long tails and the long tails have an important genetic component, then they should disappear relatively quickly from the population. Beautiful. A simple equation that predicts how populations will evolve. That's why biologists love the equation. It's incredibly powerful and pretty simple to use. On this episode, we and our guest are calling bullshit on this simple idea. The breeder's equation doesn't actually capture how genes work. It's useful to predict evolutionary outcomes just because genes and traits are often related statistically. And if you're a regular listener, you'll remember that Massimo Piliucci told us in episode 7 that genes by themselves don't do crap. Genes, genes by, by themselves, themselves don't, don't do crap. crap. <laughs> Very nice. He means that genes provide instructions, but the way those instructions get carried out is super important too. Today, we're focusing on the hard reality of how genomes work and evolve. In other words, the truth is that most genes don't affect just one trait, as the breeder's equation implies. 
Most genes affect many traits, and so most traits also have multiple genes that affect them. And this is called pleiotropy. To make things more complicated, many genes also affect how other genes operate, something we call epistasis. The genome is the background environment for all other gene functions. You put this all together, and what it means is that selection causes evolution by working on an incredibly tangled genetic web. And that web has big consequences for where new genetic variation comes from and how super complex traits like the eye or migratory behavior or fancy dances done by birds in the tropics, how they evolve. We're talking about those ideas with Mihaila Pavlichev. She's a researcher at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital who studies this tangled web. And she wants to develop a more realistic picture of how genetic differences lead to differences in physical traits. Genetic differences alone cannot be, you know, the, 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 the effects are not attributed to genes alone, that they, they get filtered through the, the, through the development. And it's only the development that actually decides what kind of effect they will have on the, on the phenotype. So it's, it's, it's not the, the mutation alone, it's the way the mutation is translated into the phenotypic effect. We're dividing this episode into two chapters. In this first section, we talk to Mihaela about pleiotropy and how genes affect more than one trait. And we also talk about epistasis, which is just another way of saying that some genes affect how other genes work. In the second section, we'll talk with Mihaela about one of the major consequences of these ideas, something called evolvability. It seems like systems where the parts are so tangled up with each other, they might not even work, much less evolve. But Mihaela explains how this biological entanglement might seem like a mess, but it's actually helpful in some situations. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. We're, we're delighted today to have Mihaela Pavlichev on the show, and um, this is part of a, I would say, sort of a repeating series of ours. Uh, uh, we're interested in in really forward-looking evolutionary ideas and, and people who are pushing the boundaries of, of the basic evolutionary theory as we've understood it for the last 50 years or so. Um, but... I just wanted to start by asking about this idea of of genotype phenotype maps. So, so you've written quite extensively about those, and they seem to be a, a kind of core concept for your work. So, um, can, can you just explain to us what a genotype phenotype map is? Um, yes, to to genotype phenotype maps, the way I understand them um, is really very similar to the way I, I, I think about the the development or the physiology. So something that mediates between the, um, the genetic variation and the phenotypic variation as we see it, so the variation in traits that we can, we can observe in the population. The difference, of course, is that this is a statistical representation of it. Mm. But, uh, but it, it really encompasses everything that happens between the, the mutation that arises and the, the either behavioral phenotype or the or the morphological phenotype or, or physiology that uh, that really manifests these differences in the population as we see them. This for me is the, the genotype phenotype map. Before we get too far, it's important to distinguish these two approaches to understanding evolution. The traditional approach based on the breeder's equation focuses on relationships between traits and genes in whole populations. Mihaela's approach focuses on how genes cause trait variation. 
In other words, the old way was correlational, and the new one seeks to understand the actual pathways by which traits develop and differ. We had on uh, Massimo Piliucci a little while ago, and um, he made a statement that really resonated with us so much that um, we put it on the back of a t-shirt. Jeans don't do crap. Um, and that's, that's definitely a bold statement, but I, I think what he was trying to articulate, it was you know, for a slightly different thing, but um, what he was trying to articulate was this point about genetic differences that you raised, the genetic differences versus genetic causes. And um, I know that's sort of a, you know, a banner that you carry, but can you say anything about you know, linking population level variation to the underlying mechanisms? I mean, it, that, that seems to be a big piece of what motivates you now. Yes, I mean, that's, that's the part that is really hard to do. And that's, I think, the part we should be striving for. But I think that what, what Massimo means is that, that uh, genetic differences alone cannot be, you know, the, 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 the effects are not attributed to genes alone, that they, they get filtered through the, the, through the development. And mm-hmm. it's only the development that actually decides what kind of effect they will have on the, on the phenotype. So it's, it's, it's not the, the mutation alone, it's the way the mutation is translated into the phenotypic effect that is really uh, important then for evolution. And that's really what, the, what this translation is really the genotype to phenotype map. Yeah, okay. So, so the focus here seems to be on, uh, in part on phenotypic variation. And I guess... If we just sort of step back, why why is that a hard thing to understand? Why why has that been a hard problem in evolutionary biology? Um, I think just simply because, and simply is 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 a is a joke really, because <laughs> because, because the organisms are so complex, and we know that we have very many more traits that we had than we have genes, right? So um, so how how is it that uh, you know? the genes are the, the the effects of the genes can produce all this variation and all this this complex traits and above all things how can they evolve then because how can you change a gene that is probably uh, doing very many things in a in a in a complex uh, system how can you change it by mutation without really um, being completely detrimental and, and, and fatal. How is it mm-hmm. that the development can produce something that can actually change in the, in the, in the evolution if the, the, that something is so complex? So, so you're referring to something that uh, working biologists call pleiotropy and... And that epistasis, means, really, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and epistasis, yeah. So let's, let's get into both of those. So, so pleiotropy refers to single genes, single alleles having effects on multiple different traits at, at the same time. Um, in general, how many traits do individual genes affect, do you think? And how, how, how tied up is um, all of these linkages? I think genes are, are reused in development very, very many times in, in very many many um, phenotypes, but what we see from, from the genes that are variable, that, that, that you, know, you can see by, the, by studying the pleiotropy, the variational pleiotropy, um, we, we see that there, there are very many, um, there are very few genes that are really affecting very many traits. Other scientists have estimated that, on average, a given gene affects somewhere between five and seven traits. 
Mahela said that may sound high, but that it's actually kind of low. And this is important because many of our intuitions about how genes affect the phenotype, a lot of population genetics, um, are actually working under assumptions that, that all genes affect all traits. Hmm. So it's really a, um, a very different, different way of seeing this. That, that's funny for you to say that, that that's very few traits, because in some ways that still sounds like a lot to me, right? I mean, you've got genes affecting five or six or seven different traits. That seems like it would be enough to, to you know, really slow down the rate of evolution, for example, if there were, if there were negative effects on some traits and positive on others. And that's, that's true. That is what is happening. We call that um, um, evolutionary constraint. And what it mm -hmm. really is, is the structure of the development. It's reusing of the same, of the same processes in, in, in different uh, places. We, you know, the very obvious um, um, examples, how you can see that things are reused is where also the morphology is reused, right? Um, mm -hmm. Like um, limbs are a good example. We have practically the same structure of limbs. You know, we have the, the, the upper um, femur, in the, uh, in the uh, hind limb, so in, in our legs, and the, the upper um, humerus in, uh, bone in, in our arms, and then two bones after that, and then fingers and toes. Um, those are the same structures that are driven by mostly the same genes. So we would have a pleiotropy of those limb genes in fore and hind limb. And yes, that does have as a consequence that there is, a, there is a limited freedom, so to say, on how much variation you can, you can generate for, for the four limbs that is independent and not entangled with the hind limbs. In other words, um, most of the time when you impose selection on, on the four limbs, you will also get a change in the hind limbs because the genes are, are shared. Hmm. You know, that strikes me as something really interesting with respect to human evolutionary history and the evolution of, of bi, a bipedal lifestyle, right? So there must have been a lot of evolution of our our legs and our arms as we became bipedal. And is there any sort of direct evidence that, you know, the evolution of our legs constrained the evolution of our, our arms? Yeah, uh there is, I mean, it, it's, um, there is actually a study, uh, and I, I cannot tell you all the details anymore, it's just a little bit far, far back, um, <laughs> but there is a study in, in, in PNAS that actually looks at the, at, the, at the limbs, there's of course much more work than, than that on the limbs of, of, uh, of, um, of in human evolution, but, but uh, that actually really asks that question of, of how the, how the, uh, human has diverged from, you know, uh, four and hind limbs being being developing very closely to each other. Hmm. So, so you mean our, our forearms and hind limbs are more different from each other than sort of a typical mammal? Yeah, you would you would expect that, right? Because our, also we use them in a in a more different way than if we would be a, a, a quadrupedal. When one gene is connected to many traits, it seems like it would be really hard for that kind of system to evolve. Like Mihaela said, if you change genes for forelimbs, there's a good chance you'll affect the back limbs too. But it's actually even more complicated than that. In addition to affecting multiple traits, genes can also affect other genes, this idea called epistasis. We asked Mihaela why epistasis matters. And here 
I have to, to introduce another concept that I think is, is really important, and, um, and that is epistasis, so gene-gene interaction, or, or in other words, the context dependency of genetic effect. Right. And what, what that practically means is that mutation at, at, at one locus has a, has a, you know, we know that it has a certain effect on the phenotype. For example, it changes um, um, the leg for, for two centimeters, right? Mm-hmm. Length of the leg. Um, but now, usually a genome has, has variation at, on, at, at, more, of, at more, than, more than one locus, right? So um, if this mutation that changes this allele substitution practically that changes the 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 um, the length of the leg for for two centimeters is is uh, occurs at the diff on the different genome so on the not on a different species but in an individual that that has also you know another mutation at some other locus mm-hmm. that two centimeters might be five so that's why epistasis matters a mutation in one gazelle might give it a slightly longer leg, but the same mutation in another gazelle would give it a really long leg because its genetic background is different. We've been thinking this through now on with effect on a single G, uh, on a single phenotype, right? It was our our um, length of the leg. So mm-hmm. we said that the effect on of of one substitution on the length is different depending what is on another locus. Okay, now we can we can think the same thing when we are considering more than one trait. Right. So um, now we say that the effect, uh, a mutation that, that we know of has an effect not only on one trait, it has an effect on two traits. Can I just um, jump in here and maybe just try to summarize uh, what what you just said? And I'm thinking about this maybe from a, like a student perspective, you know. So thinking about epistasis, if you're if you're just getting into this, like like what does that really mean? And and is this a fair way to say it that I think most of us come into evolution with a, a kind of naive idea that there is variation in traits and that there's these sort of underlying genes that are contributing to that. And we, we consider the effect of each gene independently because that's the simple way to think about it. And what you're saying is that what really matters for the traits and for how variation in particular loci affect those traits is the identity of all of the other genes and all of the other alleles in, in the genome. And so it's a giant kind of web of interactions that are contributing to these traits. And that, that that web of interactions itself can differ from one organism to the next. Is, is that a fair statement? Yeah, that's a fair statement. So um, okay. it's, it's, it's actually two things that, that, that come out of, of, um, of thinking this way about epistasis. One is that, uh, yes, it's not, it's not single um, effects of single genes. They're not independent from each other. But also, it means that the the effects are not inherent to the gene mm-hmm. because they change depending on the on the um, on the background, right? Whether yeah. or not this is this is a network of the whole 
genome, I, I, I don't know. Uh, my guess is that that network, and that's why I said at the beginning, the, you know, the modularity is both pleiotropy as well as, as epistasis. My, my, my uh, guess is that that would be, uh, you know, there would be a subsets of genes that are interacting in, in, in certain ways. And probably those will matter. Hmm. That, that's super interesting. And um, do you think this has implications for levels of selection? And, and by that, I mean, you know, if you take a highly reductionist sort of Dawkins-esque view of evolution, you would say that, you know, there are alleles and they're being sorted by whatever processes, including natural selection. And it seems like if you have a big web of interactions that stretches across the entire genome, that that the level of selection then becomes something higher. It becomes that web or that entire genome rather than individual genes within it. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's uh, the idea that, that uh, you can pick and choose single genes, I think, it's, it's an, or single mutations. Is, is, uh, I, I, you know, I would hope we would be over that. Uh, a long time ago. <laughs> are we? No. <laughs> no. No. But but there are reasons I think why we aren't, and um, and and here I I want to really stress that that you know the approach of of what you describe is 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 um, is more population genetic approach is very successful and that that itself has its own reasons. So, so far we've arrived at this idea that gene effects and genomes are, are tangled webs and it seems like the whole system ought to freeze up because, you know, you pull on any one yarn in the, in the pile and it affects all the rest of them. But in reality, it's got structure that not only helps to sort of get around the, you know, what looks like entanglement, it actually opens doors. So in this second section, we talk with Mahela about a way out of this mess. Basically, she said many genes are grouped together. The genes within a module work in concert and are partially disconnected from genes in other modules. They're not tangled to the point of dysfunction. They're organized in a way that might even facilitate life and evolution. Here's the rest of our conversation with Mahela. So, shift gears a little bit. I mean, I guess we, we've talked about it a little, a little bit. You used the word already, I think. But um, what about let's confront this concept of evolvability? Um, so, so what is that? And um, you know, I guess I understand it sort of to be a couple of different things. Darwin talked about it with respect to the eye, but I think what you and others in modern times have been thinking about is a little bit different. So. What do you want to say about evolvability? Right. So, so um, at, at least two different meanings are kind of very, very commonly around. One is just simply having having a lot of of uh, additive genetic variation. So the the variation that can be immediately used by the by the population. And uh, and in in the you know in a in a present time in in the in the population. And the mm-hmm. other is a little bit more. Um, 
again related to the structure of the genotype phenotype map, and it, it means being able to produce uh, uh, variation and respond to selection. Um, and the, the reason why this one is, is interesting for me, apart from you know, just being interested in the genotype phenotype map, is that there are, there are certain ways of how, how the development or, or genotype phenotype map really is structured that can increase the amount of variation that is that is um, available then to to selection. So by that I mean that not only that the selection, uh, you know, makes a certain pattern of variation in the population, but that that kind of pattern already arises as mutation arises. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and that's 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 a little bit different concept, and and it goes really back to um, um, at the first it goes far back, but it, the first the first time showing that I think is is uh, by Per Alberg and Emily Gale in in their experiments on the on the salamanders and frogs, where they've shown that if they perturb very very early development developmental stage of of limb development that they will get a very specific, um, for the clade, very for the species, very specific kind of mutational effects on the phenotype. Mm -hmm. That are, what I mean by specific is that they're specific for frogs and are different from the, from the salamanders. Um, and those are the ones that are actually also realized then in the, in the clade. So they, they practically show that there is, a, there is something within the, the the structure of the development is itself um, that is um, that is really deciding how the the phenotypic variation in a population will be structured. How how what kind of pattern you will get? Yeah. Okay. Wow. There's so much to impact there. That's <laughs> I know. That's amazing. I mean, so okay. Can we can we go back to the first or the, I guess the hallmark use of evolvability and Darwin in the sense that when he talked about the evolution of the eye, a lot of the critics of evolution by natural selection have invoked the complexity of the eye as a problem, right? So how in the world, as he said, how in the world with all of these intricate mechanisms, could they've all sort of evolved in concert to produce the function that we now see? So if you roll the clock forward, what you're advocating, I think, is that something about the architecture of the genome and the sort of reality, the, the um, commonness of epistasis actually provides a way into that. And the example of the salamanders is sort of that, that other example about how in one evolutionary lineage you're getting a different outcome than you would get in others. Yeah. So, I mean, can you articulate how you might end up with the resolution to, to the sort of Darwin's conundrum? in the context of, of your second version of evolvability? I think the evolvability as we see it now, you know, there are, there are very specific, um, specific um, um, attributes of the, of the genotype phenotype that we usually, usually invoke for explaining this, this um, you know, ability to, to, to evolve these very complex phenotypes. Mm -hmm. um, maybe two of the two of the most most common are robustness, and and I will go into into what what I mean by that, and uh, and the other is modularity. Mm -hmm. So um, the problem of evolving complex structures, as we said before, is just simply that that you know just by random changes, um, you might just 
you know you cannot you cannot fine tune your microscope just by by randomly um, um, turning on a on a on a knob, right? It mm -hmm, doesn't mm -hmm. work usually because it's it's very fine thing that you need. Um, and the and the idea is is that that uh, modularity actually structures in a way. So it's it's really a um, um, an idea about the pleiotropy that the pleiotropy is arranged in a certain very specific way so that the things that the phenotypes that have to function together change together mm -hmm. so that's the that's the, the the main idea about the, the the modularity so that you don't get interference between different functions so that you actually with much lesser number of steps go into a much more constrained but but much more more um efficient direction mm -hmm. and the other and, and and just can i jump in here so so modularity according to what we were talking about earlier about um how many different effects particular genes have by by modularity you mean that um the the effects of particular genes are restricted to modules and they interact with genes that are also affecting traits within that module but they're not stretching across to other modules. Exactly. So it's a kind of disconnecting of the different different parts of an organism. Is right. that right? Yes. And and okay. and uh, just because I referred to the constraint before, how is that how is that now suddenly you know uh, advantageous if if I told mm -hmm. I, I told you that that was a constraint, and um, and this is really really sometimes sometimes very very. Um, uh, uh, very much discussed because what what the modularity or that kind of of structure is of course advantageous as long as the gene the, uh, as the traits that are affected by the same genes are in some consistent you know some some under some selection together Mm-hmm. But modularity becomes a constraint when they suddenly come under under um, uh, divergent selection, for instance. Right. Mm -hmm. So as long as you are within the module, um, and they function together or they develop together or whatever the the, the common effect is, they they will modularity is advantageous. That's a super important idea. The genes are all tangled up in, in a web, but one gene isn't necessarily connected to every other gene. One consequence of this modular structure is that mutations in one gene won't necessarily disrupt the jobs genes evolved to do. It's an idea called robustness. So robustness is is um, is a is a, a a different way different way of a structure, and that's that's really that not all of the mutations um, have effects on the phenotype under all circumstances. So so practically, if there is a perturbation, both either genetic or or also environmental, that there is no the the phenotype is buffered against mm -hmm. that. So the, so those are the um, the mutations that we sometimes call cryptic variation, right? Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. there is, there is, they don't, we cannot see them, but there is still a lot of of, um, of variation. And the, so, so the robustness refers to robustness to new mutations, not like the organism is robust. Right. It's robustness right. to new mutations. Yes. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Yes. And um, and the the uh, advantage that this might bring is that under different circumstances, we said just before, right, that mutations are um, are dependent on the context. So when you change the context, those 
those mutations might actually become visible. Mm-hmm. And only when they are visible, that means that they 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 make uh, they cause changes differences between the individuals, between the ones that carry them and the ones that don't. Um, only then they are also selectable. Hmm. This is one of my favorite topics in sort of modern evolutionary theory because it's one of the the first ways that I've been able to wrap my head around the sort of sources of genetic variation, right? I mean, with classical ideas, variation should by and large kind of go away. And in this context, you get, especially we talk more about networks, which we probably shouldn't do right now, you're having the opportunity to explore all of this space and just have lots of this latent genetic variation that depending on epistasis or depending on, you know, some form of phenotypic plasticity, you're getting this stuff to show up. So it's just so cool to think about robustness as a way to mitigate mutation actually opens up doors to, you know, the differences that are in involved in selection later and you know what the diversification of life has been about just the weirdest roundabout way to get to you know some of the really important things in evolutionary biology that's true but keep in mind that when of course when the um when the the context changes not Mm -hmm. only what was cryptic became visible but also what what you know was was visible might disappear so it's you know this goes in, in mm-hmm. all, this is this is um this is not to say of course that this is a this is in any way um uh, directional right it's it's mm-hmm. still random mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah it's it's still random but it's a sort of that you know that production of variation uh, that oftentimes well it's just in it's it's interesting to have a really big machine to generate that variation again and sort of play around with a lot of mutation that, you know, is not going to be, you know, this sort of most of it is bad. A lot of it is innocuous until it ends up in the right context. Right. So uh, let's let's be negative a little bit about evolvability. Um, I, I don't, you know, it's not always necessary to play devil's advocate, but I think that it's reasonable. There, there's one really reasonable point. I think probably many, but one that definitely deserves discussion. Um, evolvability is not obviously a trait of individuals, right? So I mean, h- how is it the case that? Um, it, it evolves. I mean, how, how do you how do you make the? It's not like a you know bone examples that we were using before, leaf structure or something like that. How does it provide value to an individual? Yeah, we we addressed it in a in a in a way that that um, you know it's not really evolution of evolvability. It's evolution of the mechanisms that <laughs> that produce evolvability, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, so in 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 my work, we we've we've looked at the at the evolution of pleiotropy. So the pleiotropy gives you a certain kind of evolvability. It gives you an a certain pattern where you know the variation is generated in a certain direction, like um, in a direction of, of, you know, correlations between the traits, for example, but mm-hmm. not, not in others. And when you change that, when you change the, the, the pleiotropy, as we talked before, the, you know, the, the epistatic pleiotropy, uh, mm-hmm. when you change that, then you, of course, change the, the evolvability. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, uh, you can imagine the evolution of evolvability that actually does work 
on the on the individual level, right? Historically, we've thought of evolution as a fairly simple process. Combine trait differences among individuals with some selection and a sprinkle of heritability, and poof, you get evolution. But Mahela says the true effects of genes on traits really changes the way evolution works. Genes don't work in a vacuum. They're connected to each other, and most of them affect more than one trait. This complex web affects how trait differences manifest and how novel mutations affect life functions and fitness. Altogether, that means that the tangled nature of the genome affects how evolution proceeds. This view of genes and their relationships to traits is a bit of a break from tradition, but it might help us resolve some long-standing puzzles in the field. For instance, it helps us appreciate that differences in the organization of genomes, something called evolvability, could help some lineages cope better with changing environments and mutations than others. If you like this episode, check out episode 7 of Big Biology. There we interviewed Massimo Piliucci about plasticity and niche construction, somewhat related topics. You can find it on our website, bigbiology.org. Also, before we finish the episode, we want to plug Patreon one more time. If you like what you're hearing, please consider supporting the show. You can find the Patreon page at www.patreon.com bigbio. Thanks to Matt Boyce for writing and production help on this episode. Thanks also to Haley Hansen and Chloe Ramsey for managing Big Biology's social media accounts. And thanks to Steve Lane for managing our website. And thanks to the University of South Florida College of Public Health for financial support. Music on this episode is from Poddington Bear. <laughs>